Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hey, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nail to Door Throw podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but today you are tuned into our Citation Classics, and we have yet another classic <laughs> episode involving our trauma team. And today they're going to talk a little bit about femoral neck fractures, something that we all will see during residency and we probably all will take care of at some point. And so they're going to go over the highest cited articles over the past X amount of years. They actually give you a little background information as well. They do an awesome job. So let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. If you want to follow along and you actually want to see some of the articles and see some of the stuff, maybe you're somebody that likes putting some YouTube on your TV and doing things around the house while you look and pay attention and write some notes, go ahead and do that. Click the link in the description that has the link to the YouTube video. All right, everybody. Until next time, enjoy the episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Everyone, welcome back to Trauma Citation Classics. We're moving on into some adventures in femoral neck fracture, moving a little bit further away from our, our hip fractures really not that far because there's still our hip fractures right made of the acetabulum and the femoral head neck so we're going to be talking a little bit about that this is a, a super common fracture pattern it's something you're going to see a ton of uh, throughout your career throughout your residency or throughout your medical uh, school rotations and something that we love talking about at board and, and going into big congrats to nick coming in at uh, intern year coming through even though he's busy he's going to be talking to us olu's now a big bag too and breeze crushing some uh some away rotations so good job guys and here we go all right real quick to look at just some background so what is a femoral neck fracture in general that we talk about three areas of the femoral neck one is directly below the head which is the sub capital right just below the head there's a trans cervical which is right across the middle and then a basi cervical which is at the base of the neck in general we're talking about femoral neck fractures usually where we're talking about an elderly folks we're talking more of the subcapital and the transcervical and then in younger folks we start getting more into the basi cervical so they're a little bit more high energy and why is that important we talk about those three different areas if you look up on our, our slide we have just the basics of the blood supply to the head those intracapsular fractures which are the transcervical and the subcapitals typically you start getting some disruption of the blood flow to the head and you start worrying about the, the head dying getting some osteonecrosis and kind of some issues moving forward Whereas basi cervical, you can, if as long as it, it truly is extracapsular, we can start thinking about that a little bit more like an intertrochanteric fracture, but we'll talk about those at a later show, as, Dr. as Alton Brown would say, but that's another show. And then anytime we're talking about femoral neck fractures and particularly the subcapital fractures, people love talking about the garden classification, separated into one, two, three, and four, but really simplified down into one and two, which are non-displaced. And so thought to be more stable and less risk of osteonecrosis of the femoral head. And then three and four, which are 
partially displaced and displaced, so displaced fractures. And so thought to, or and so we found that they increased risk of osteoporosis and blood supply disrupted to the head. And so we'll dive into that a little bit of what that means in this this talk. It should be pretty hard hitting. This is pretty well established stuff at this point. So we'll kind of go through, but really talk about some of the the limitations and the, the real conclusions that come out of these studies. Once again, these are some of the higher cited studies and, and we really utilize the OTA evidence-based medicine portion of their website in order to, to identify these really hard hitting articles. So here we'll start it off with Bree. Hey, everyone. We're going to start off with Dr. Keating and colleagues' paper on randomized comparison of reduction in fixation, bipolar hemiarthroplasty, and total hip arthroplasty for the treatment of displaced intercapsular hip fractures. This was published in JBJS in 2006. This article was really stimulated over previous controversy of what was the best method of fixation for healthy mobile adults greater than the age of 60 with displaced intercapsular hip fractures. I was talking about the garden classification. This is specifically looking at type 3 and type 4 fractures. And options for fixation really include hemiarthroplasty and total hip arthroplasty with or without cement, in addition to that reduction in fixation method. So this study in particular was a Scottish multicenteral, multi-center randomized control trial for surgical treatment of healthy independent ambulators with displaced intercapsular hip fractures. Patients were allocated to one of three surgical treatment groups, which included either reduction and fixation with cannulated screws or a sliding hip screw, a cemented hemiarthroplasty uh, with a bipolar component, or a cemented total hip arthroplasty. And all of these were completed within 48 hours of patient presentation. And the aim of this study was really to determine the impact of cervical intervention, surgical intervention on functional outcomes, clinical parameters, and economic burden within two two years of post-op. And these were looking at specifically European quality of life questionnaire for functional outcomes. Clinical outcomes were determined with mortality, readmission, and reoperation. And then they looked at some secondary clinical outcomes for fixation failure, non-union, and post-operative complications. So when we look at the study population, patients were included if they were diagnosed with a displaced intercapsular hip fracture with normal cognition, were independently mobile, and lacked serious comorbidities. And they were excluded if they had a mini mental status score less than six, were dependent mobility ambulators or had other clinical reason for exclusion. They were able to select a total of 291 patients with 207 patients enrolled and randomized to one of the three treatment groups with 118 to the fixation group, 111 to bipolar hemiarthroplasty, and 69 to total hip arthroplasty. The average age of these patients was about 75, with 78% being female. And the majority of these patients did receive their allocated treatment, but it was up to surgeon discretion whether or not the allocated treatment was appropriate for each patient. So diving into the results a little bit after they analyzed multiple factors, Mortality rates were relatively similar across the three treatment groups, but there were significant differences in the functional, clinical, and economic parameters. Total hip arthroplasty was more likely to be performed by a senior surgeon and had the longest operative time, but these patients overall had the best functional and clinical outcomes at two years post-op, especially in younger patients around age 65 to 74. 
in comparison, reduction in fixation had the shortest operative time, but the greatest economic impact due to the high rate of failure requiring readmission and revision within those first two years. And if you're following along with the slides, this graph demonstrates time to reoperation or death, and it's demonstrating how fixation is functionally inferior to arthroplasty as fixation is typically associated with need for additional procedures such as revision. All right. And then just diving into some of the limitations of this study, although kernel validity was relatively high for this unique study, there were multiple limitations, including generalizability, a small sample cell, small sample size with only about 80% power, and a fixed length of follow-up. Overall, the generalizability was really reduced by that surgeon decision of whether or not patients should be allocated to the treatment group and the difference in rationale between surgeons for that decision. Otherwise, there was an intention to treat analysis performed to try and account for this, which may have led to a mild increase in the observed differences. So in conclusion, really the main takeaway from this study is that reduction in fixation is not recommended for healthy independent ambulators with displaced intercapsular hip fractures, and that uh, overall total hip arthroplasty in comparison to bipolar hemiarthroplasty does have better functional outcomes and, and can be further recommended for highly active community ambulators. This is one of those, those studies that, you know, it makes sense. We think that these displaced fractures, they're at risk for secondary issues due to the blood flow from the head. But this is a, a study that really shows us that, yes, these fractures do, don't do a great job healing and do they do need a revision rate. Or they have a high revision rate. They do need a secondary surgery, and we like to avoid that in our in our elder population. Let me uh, let me give you two patients because we like to do our, our little patient vignettes. And let me give you two patients, and we'll see if you would recommend. Then don't don't go into necessarily the 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 hip first the hemi, but would you recommend a a open reduction internal fixation or even just a closed reduction internal fixation for this patient? So you have a sixty five. So we have a 70-year-old female, avid pickler, uh, pickleball player. She plays every single day, and and you know, someone threw a banana peel on the court, and her during her uh, her championship match, and she slipped and fell on her hip, and she sustained a, a, a garden three, so a displaced or partially dis, or a, a complete and partially displaced femoral neck fracture. Are you are you going to offer fixation to her? No, and in this case, I definitely would not recommend fixation. She's like, Doc, I love my hips the way they are. I mean, I need to get back out there. And you're like, no, this would hold you back. This is bad. I'll have to do another surgery on you. And let's just cut to the chase. Good. Thanks. And then let's say a 70-year-old female who, you know what? She's been smoking for, I don't know, 60 of those years. And she's maybe two packs per day. She's got COPD. She's got kidney disease and also some, I don't know. She's also got um, congestive heart failure. Maybe fix her? So even still, we would say no in this case, because even with so many comorbidities, fixation will ultimately result in a higher need for readmission to the hospital and possible revision surgery, which could put her at greater risk in the future. Yeah, maybe you're a little bit more tempted because it's a faster surgery, a little bit less of an insult, but ultimately she's really not going to heal. And then we're just doing another surgery later and said two surgeries is, is worse than one. And so uh, particularly for that patient. So perfect. Right on. 
Uh, well, let's we'll keep those folks in mind as we move forward, and we'll keep going. So, taking a look, throw up another that background slide again, that same one with the garden classification. It's important to note, and you'll hear about it, uh, probably hear about it in board uh, everywhere over the course of your your careers and residency. The garden classification is based on AP X-ray. That's how we AP radiographs, and so that's how we can determine if it's a partial or a complete fracture, one or two, or if it's a complete fracture with incomplete displacement, a three, or with complete displacement of four, so displaced, non-displaced. That's all based on the AP. But as we know in orthopedics, we love getting orthogonal views, right? You want to get an AP and a lateral, ninety degrees from each other, to really be able to say what's going on. So how come we're not really worried about that? Does it, maybe it doesn't matter? Maybe it does. And to help shed some light on that, we've got Olu ready to, to show us the way to the truth. Alrighty, then. My name is Olu, and I'm going to be talking about this paper by Dr. Holm et al. New measurement for posterior tilt predicts reoperation in undisplaced femoral neck fractures. So, like Ma was saying, femoral neck fractures, one of the most common uh, consults you'd see as an orthopedic resident, if not the most common. And uh, typically, it's assessed based on the AP radiographs, the guarding classification, one and two being undisplaced, three and four being displaced. But in ortho, we always say one view is no view. So if we look at the lateral, can we make some decisions or can we have also some assessments based on the lateral radiograph? And that's where the measurement of posterior tilt comes in. And so this paper is essentially looking at that measurement of posterior tilt and try to see if it has any clinical utility. To do that, um, they had 113 patients over age 60 with undisplaced femoral neck fractures, meaning garden one and garden two. And all patients were treated with some form of internal fixation. So there's no hemiarthroplasty, no total hip arthroplasty. All these patients were treated with uh, internal fixation. And the, radio the lateral radiographs were used to measure posterior tilt by the same observer. Although measuring angles is more of a continuous variable, this paper chose to kind of group them into two kind of categorical groups. And so less than 20 degrees and greater than 20 degrees. They looked at reoperation rates as their main outcome. So what they find, found that 60% of those with a posterior tilt greater than 20% were reoperated on compared to the posterior tilt of less than 20, sorry, not 20%, 20 degrees were reoperated on. And compared to those with posterior tilt less than 20 degrees, only 10% of those patients were reoperated on. So 60 and 10 is, is quite a significant difference, I would say. And they found that posterior tilt of greater than 20 degrees is a significant predictor of reoperation. Other variables they looked at, like ASC score, the surgeon's expertise, post-op reductions, and even the age of the patient weren't predictive of reoperation. And so quickly, that brings us to the discussion and conclusion that a posterior tilt of greater than 20 degrees is something we should be looking at because it has a greater reoperation rate. Now that we're done with the theoretical portion or discussing the paper, I just had two points to kind of make it more practical for the orthopedic residents on the call. Uh, the, the two points I'd like to make, number one, we all know how busy it is to be an orthopedic surgery resident. And looking at the picture from 
couple slides ago, measuring that um, angle, it's not just, you know, quickly drawing one or two lines. It probably is going to take you some time. So in a fast-paced environment where you're quickly looking at x-rays, having to determine what the course of treatment is, consenting the patient, getting them ready for OR, do, would you have the time to, you know, sit down and quite do this quote-unquote complex measurement? And that's something that I'll pose to the group and also something you can discuss and with your colleagues. And the other thing is, so if we do get the measurement and it has, say a patient has a 20 degree, more than 20 degree tilt in his uh, on the lateral radiograph, would that change the attending surgeon's mind? Say the attending surgeon was going to do an internal fixation and the patient has greater than 20% posterior tilt, would that make him switch to a MBA orthoplasty or would that make him pivot entirely to a total hip? Those are the questions that I, I don't have the answers to, but this is, is surely great discussion points between medic residents and uh, fellows and staff attending this. Yeah, no, that's perfect. I think that's exactly the right question, right? Anytime we're talking about a paper, or it's like, is this enough to move the needle? Or anytime you're looking at a classification, like, is this actually helping me discuss prognosis or help me make treatment decisions? This is, you know, level, whatever, level 13 evidence based on my own experience in some of these conversations is, um, I mean, we really know people do really well with hips and hemis at this point. And so, you know, if you can pull up the lateral and you have a good lateral and you do see some, some posterior angular or a posterior tilt, right? You have apex anterior, the comminution is posterior, there's a tension sided failure on the anterior neck. And if you can see that, you pull it up at board and you see that I've seen that be enough to say, you know what, you know, in this older person, we're the best thing we can do based on remember our last discussion, we're talking about getting these folks up and moving as soon as possible is really beneficial through their mortality. And as well as getting back to independent living best chance, chance as possible. I have seen this put in the, and once again, like you said, it's a little bit of, you know, it's a discussion with the team and discussion with the, the attending, but I've seen, at least in my own experience that, uh, really looking at the lateral and if there's any real angulation that you can notice on the lateral, pushing that towards an actual treatment change. And I think that's something that's happening more and more based on this paper here, right. where if you can recognize that posterior tilt, you know, that's enough to say this is a displaced fracture. It's no longer that garden one, two. It's now where we can consider it like a garden three and in right. my experience and what's, what's happened more. So in, in those cases, are you kind of just eyeballing and saying, okay, this kind of looks like a significant displacement or are you taking the time to actually measure out the angle? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And like you say, you know, it's, it is, a, it's a little bit more than just like kind of eyeballing and putting, trying to put it down the middle, which you, you can do a little bit and it gives you something to start with. How I've seen it really utilizes, you know what, if we're sitting at board and we pull it off and pull it up and people can look across the room and see that there's an angulation there, then that's enough to, to push us one way or the other. I probably, to, to answer your question, probably like the most correct answer is to sit down and, and to try to, to measure that out and see if it's greater than 20 or less than 20. I think in practice, a lot of times it, it is that kind of feeling like, hey, looking at it, you know what? I do see some angulation there. Let's talk about, or let's, let's really sit, seriously consider making a, a change in our plan. Where if it's like, uh, maybe it's just a, a little bit, you could then perseverate on it a little bit and maybe do those borderline cases where you're not sure that's when you sit down and measure them. But if you pull it up and you see a good amount of angulation, I think that's enough to, to say that it is a displaced fracture. Makes sense. Yeah. But good questions. Great, great. Uh, And so to talk about our, our two folks for if, if 
either one of those, if that, if our pickleball player or our real sick, more sick lady were to have any posterior tilt, I'd, I'd be talking with them about um, avoiding, you know, trying to do that. The, the one surgery, the best surgery for them would be probably avoiding that internal fixation. We didn't offer internal fixation anyways in the first place for the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I wouldn't I wouldn't offer internal fixation for these guys either. In yeah. in and I think and you'll see that building across this is just with how good the implants and the and technique and everything has become, the results for total hips and for hemiarthroplasties, it seems like the indication for internal fixation is is getting fairly narrow. It, just with ability to really get people up and moving the same day help them and we'll, we'll go into that a little bit more but but yeah exactly what you're saying it is still good there are, there is still patients that would benefit from internal fixation and have their native anatomy and there's patients that will also prefer to have it so it's important to to be aware of who that really applies to those garden those true true garden ones and twos all right let's keep it a go Next up, we are taking a look a little bit more about that hemiarthroplasty and the total hip arthroplasty about how we make some of those decisions. Hey everybody, it's Nick again. Really excited to be coming at you all now as official orthopedic resident this time around. So today I'll be talking about total hip arthroplasty and hemiarthroplasty in mobile independent patients with a displaced intracapsular fracture of the femoral neck. Uh, this is a randomized controlled tile from JBJS in 2006. So like we've been talking about, I won't belabor this too much. So very common fractures, femoral neck. We can do hemis or totals. Each one has its pros and cons. We're going to delve into that a little bit uh, with this paper. So when we're thinking about, okay, who do we want to do a on? Who do we want to do a total on? Some things, just some preoperative considerations, you know, how old are they? Do they have pre-existing arthritis? Did they have hip pain before they fractured? Did they walk with a cane, walker? How did they get around? What kind of things are they doing? Were they active pickleball players? You know, that sort of thing. What are they doing? Or on the flip side, are just, they just getting, they're in a nursing home. Maybe they're just not walking. They're not ambulatory, just being transferred uh, from bed to bed or, or something like that. So getting a really good history on, on what they're doing and their activity level, all really important things when we're considering about what we're going to do preoperatively. Uh, do they have other associated injuries and are they other uh, medical comorbidities? So this paper has 81 patients who lived independently. They were mobile, uh, average age of 75 years old. Like I said, this is a prospective randomized study. So when they had the, the fracture, they're either randomly assigned to a total or a hemi after a displaced femoral neck fracture. Both the groups used Zimmer Biomed implants. Both the groups used a, a transgluteal lateral approach. The outcomes for this paper were the mean walking distance of the hemi and total group and the Oxford hip score, which we'll talk about in just a second. This is an example up on the screen for those following along video slides. It's a little hard to read, but basically the Oxford hip score is, is kind of like a history you would take in the clinic. Questions like, have you ever been able to climb the stairs? Can you do household shopping? How would you describe your hip pain? Have you had trouble by your hip pain at night? Uh, that sort of thing. So very basic history. Uh, it's 12 questions. I'm just kind of understanding where people stand on in terms of having hip pain. So this paper had an average follow-up of three years. Surprisingly, so the mean walking distance in the hemiarthroplasty group was 1.17 miles. And the total group, uh, much further, 2.23 miles. So a difference about uh, of one mile in the average distance. Each of these two groups are walking. The Oxford hip score so the hemiarthroplasty group, the Oxford hip score is 22. The total hemi or the total arthroplasty group, the mean score was 18, and the lower number equals a better score. So the hemiarthroplasty group therefore has a better Oxford hip score at 18 compared to 22. 
yeah, the Hemi group. So continuing on to results. So 20 of the 32 living patients in the Hemi group had acetabular erosion at the very final follow-up. None of the Hemi arthroplasties dislocated, but three of the totals did. Two Hemis were eventually revised to totals. One total was revised into subsidence. Those are sort of the complications associated with the surgeries. Operative time with each surgery, the mean time for the Hemi group was 78 minutes. 93 for totals. In terms of infection, there were three infections reported in the total big group and one for the Hemi group. So the conclusions for this paper, this is just some, I thought this was really quite interesting. The mean Oxford HIP score preoperatively for both groups was 12. And just to remind you, the post-op score for totals was 18 and Hemi's was 22, with the lower number being better. So both groups, whether they got a hemi or a total. Postoperatively, they had an increase in their Oxford HIP score. So no matter which one they got, they're worsening with with either either surgery. Nice, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And that and that's a, a a great summary. And I think it brings up some important things to talk about with patients if we're ever kind of trying to do some you know uh, shared decision making and talk about what the difference is between a, a total hip and a hemi. Nick, what would you say? Based on this paper, or at least what they were looking at, what would be a drawback of doing a total hip on somebody? Right. So a drawback, so it's longer, which really not a ton, it's longer increased risk of infection. If there's medical comorbidities, you know, maybe we, we want to get them off the table a little bit quicker. Like I said, there is a little bit increased operative time uh, with the total. Is that yeah. what I'd like to have seen is, is blood loss that wasn't included in the paper. Hemi had more blood loss for totals, more a little bit uh, more on the perioperative complications. But I think overall, I think not. There's there's less drawbacks with the totals compared to uh, the Hemi group, for sure. And the only other thing, and, and once again, it's I mean it's a, it's a smaller number, so it's hard to really say significance. But something that we always talk about, or we often talk about, not just based on this paper, but other papers, is there's also a risk for dislocation with total hips. The dislocation risk with Hemi's is lower. Kind of know that from other bodies of work, and so. And folks, maybe that you're you're looking at it might have like a seizure disorder and things of like that that might increase the risk of dislocation or a more stable implant as a, as a hemi would might be a, a reason to push over that way. But but you're right, you know, like the total hips are they they did better. They were able to do more. They were able to walk further. They had a, a lower Oxford hip score, and so that's just really good to see that you know what there is a there is a difference. And then something else you mentioned was the the vestibular erosion that they they saw in a good number of the hemiarthroplasties even at 3 years out so we know that pretty quickly hemiarthroplasties can start wearing away and so you know two had to be converted to totals the a large number of them had acetabular erosion you know a hemiarthroplasty is not necessarily a, a fire and forget you know it's something that we want to consider probably in folks that aren't using it all that much won't really experience that significant wear, we're thinking that's probably due with, you know, the people who are walking more or putting more on it were probably the ones that were having more wear. It would make sense. That's not what this paper has proven by any means, but it makes sense in our minds thinking about that. And so if folks that are less demand might be able to live longer on the hemi. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think one of maybe the slight drawbacks here, you know, they may have, both of the groups are using the lateral approach. It's, it is, it's, when you look at it from that way, it's a little bit of apples and oranges where you know, maybe how would things change if you got someone to do an anterior or posterior approach in your Emmys or actually yeah. in your tolls? Yeah, yeah. If that, if that changes anything or, and, and I know there's been, there's, we, we could go, we could talk a lot about approaches and dislocation risks and things of that nature. Right. Uh, some of our arthroplasty colleagues, super excited, but that's a little bit outside the scope here, but it, it was, of course, right. Yeah. 
but but it is nice that they for this they did use the same approach for both which is pretty good uh so thinking about our two patients our pickler and our our smoker would you offer them the same surgery you think so i think our pickler i think we definitely need to push for them to get a total so we can get them back to playing pickleball the smoker i could think could go either way i think we could we could offer them a total but maybe uh maybe a better choice yeah and and like i mean even with all of the comorbidities and everything i mean it's obviously a frank discussion of our anesthesia colleagues like hey do we need to get her off the table as soon as possible is she like that sick or i don't there's some folks that have copd and are smoking and have some chf but are like just chugging along live their life and like she you know she's got her her comorbidities going on but she lives alone goes to the corner store every day does her own shopping does her own cooking cleaning like that could still put her in the total hip you know you still got to talk to her even beyond just what she looks like on paper and, and see what what she does and how she lives her life yeah yeah Exactly. I agree. All right. Let me zip through real quick for those that we do, for folks that we do think, you know what, hemiarthroplasty is the way we want. Those are really, it seems like we've narrowed in. These are the people that we want to do a quick surgery, get them off the table, out of the risk of the operative environment as soon as possible, that stress on their system. We want to give them a a stable implant to get them up and moving, but you know, they're sicker. And so probably it seems like maybe less is more for them. And so we start looking into here, this paper is hemiarthroplasty of the hip with and without a cement, a randomized clinical trial. And so this is from JBJS in 2012. You notice a lot of JBJS studies this time around. There's lots of really good studies taking a look at this. And so should we use cement? And the background is we know cement takes longer. It would complicate any revision. And so maybe that's a bad idea in these, in these sicker folks. There's also a risk of bone cement implantation syndrome, which it causes hypoxia, hypotension, cardiac arrhythmias, pulmonary vascular resistance, and, and cardiac resi- re- arrest. And it's really, really hard for anesthesia to address or reverse when this happens. It has a really high mortality rate. It's very, very rare, but it has, but it's a really bad thing when it happens. But on the other hand, cement can prevent loosening. But on the other hand, we also have like implants that are hydroxyapatite coated, which could lead to better bony end growth and could give you the benefits of a, of a cemented arthroplasty. And so is it worth the risks of cement to cement them or do we need to, or at least the folks that are going to do just fine uncemented and, and we don't have to worry about it and they get to get some out of the operating faster. So they did a, a blinded randomized controlled trial, which is pretty cool. They did cementer striker exeter stem versus a Zimmer aloe classic, which I have pictures up here, but basically these are two commonly used ones, particularly overseas. We don't you don't see quite so many of those Zimmer classics around here. They had 160 patients out of 301 possible. Important to note, they excluded previous fractures, pathologic fractures, and also mortality risk based on cardi- uh, history of cardiovascular and pulmonary disease. They actually excluded those patients because they were worried about a bone cement implantation syndrome. Basically, if anesthesia said, you know what, no, we're, we're, we should just take care of them really quickly, they actually did not get into the study. And so it, it's I, that is a limitation of the study. It ends up the people that we end up wanting to do the surgery for the most actually got looted from this study. But they had garden three or four femoral neck fractures. It's a Singer Center in Australia. They did a hardened lateral approach like uh, Nick's paper. They followed them up at six weeks, six months, 12 months, and 24 years. Or sorry, in 24 months. Uh, not 24 years, 24 months. Uh, 110 out of the 160 were female. They had a mean age of 85. They All the patients received the allocated treatment. That's pretty impressive. And they took a look at complications, the MMSE, the timed up and go test or the tug test, the a short MSK function assessment, the VAS score or the one to 10 pain score, Oxford hip score, and then also living independently. The VAS or the one to 10 pain score was the primary endpoint as 
as well as your Oxford HIP score, which Nick talked about. So in general, the results, we had a faster OR time for the uncemented HEMIs, which we kind of expected, but it was only four and a half minutes faster. So not crazy, a lot faster. Complications were higher in the unsubmitted stems. And when you look at it and when you look at the the chart we have up, it really is because of periprosthetic fractures. There was intraoperative fractures, zero in the cemented and six in the uncemented. There's postoperative fracture in 12 uncemented and only one cemented. So that's really where the complication difference came from is, is uh, fractures both intraoperatively and postoperatively, most of them co- happening postoperatively. And then there was subsidence as well in the uncemented group. Looking at the clinical outcomes, your VAS and your short muscular fun- musculoskeletal functional assessment were better at each time point for the cemented, but it was not significant. The Oxford HIP score actually had a significant improvement. Uh, it was significantly better in the cemented at six weeks. And the timed up and go test was significant at six months and 12 months. But uh, we know that independent living decreased in both kind of from our conversation last time. Lots of limitations. There's somewhat of a selection bias like we talked about before. The sickest are those that we traditionally think of for hemiarthroplasty, and they were excluded from this study. Uh, but they did have an average age of 85. That's a, a comp, like that's a group that we definitely would also be considering for hemiarthroplasty. There was a significant dropout rate where like they only had 110, 110 and, and uh, they did lose some folks to, uh, to follow up. And they only used uh, two specific prosthesis. So can we generalize this to what we're still using and the, the newest generation of implants? But basically the conclusion is we had a lower complication rate with cement due to the fractures. There was no difference in cardiovascular or pulmonary complications or mortality in the perioperative or postoperative period. There was a trend to better functional ability in the cement group with significance in the timed up and go test late and with the Oxford score early. And we know from our, our primary care colleagues that the timed up and go test is actually a well correlated with continued function independence in our elderly population. So it's it's important to see that difference in our cemented group. There's been continued, I just wanted to share, there's been continued research into this over the past 10 years and uh, kind of looking at some of that meta-analysis data, the, the body of literature really points to actually a mortality and morbidity benefit in cementing. And so just as a group, I think that we're getting to the point where this question has been fairly well put to rest that, you know, if you're going to do a HEMI, you should be cementing that HEMI. And that's kind of newer stuff over the course of the past couple of years. And I'm sure that would cause a little bit of a conversation and over some fracture conferences and things like that. And so definitely something to be thinking about. All right. No hip fracture conversation to be complete without mentioning very briefly. What about, we talked about, these are all like elderly people. What about people between 15 and 50? What about the young people with, with thermal neck fractures? What should we do anything different from them? And the short answer is is yes. And for young people, we always want to make sure we're focusing on preserving bone and preventing AVN and osteonecrosis. And so these po- the folks, I apologize about pronouncing the, the lead author's name on this is Hidukowicz, I believe, I apologize, and, some, and the folks out of Mayo for the, published on this JBJS in 2004. And basically they, they looked at all their patients from 1975 to 2000, from ages to 15 to 50. They had 83 consecutive femoral neck fractures. They excluded the pathologic fractures. They had eight lost to follow-up and two died. So they had 73 total in the, the study population. The treatment was determined by the surgeon. There was also differences in time to treatment. There was differences in residual. They looked at time to treatment. They looked at residual angulation and displacement. They, uh, they said the excellent reduction was less than five degrees of angulation and less than two degrees of displacement. Good was between five to 10 degrees. Of angulation and two to five degrees of d- millimeters of displacement. Fair reduction was 
two to 10 degrees of angulation residual and five to 10 millimeters. And then poor was greater than 20 degrees or greater than 10 millimeters. They looked at non-union defined at six months. They looked at osteonecrosis and based on the, the FICAT score. Uh, and then they used conversion to THA as an endpoint. So basically they looked at a lot of, bunch of different stuff and they said, does any of this mean bad outcomes? And we'll talk about that. So it's important to talk about the fact that treatment was determined by a surgeon. There was there were some very fairly hetero, heterogeneous, heterogeneous, fairly different treatments. There were 51 displaced fractures and 22 non-displaced, kind of looking at the garden classification again. 52 were treated with cannulated screws. There was also treatment with sliding hip screws, recon nails, angled blade plates, McLaughlin plate. 14 had open reduction. Seven had, were closed, but they still did a capsulotomy to try to release some of that pressure from possible bleeding. The capsulotomy was done in four displaced fractures and three displaced non-displaced fractures. 53 of these were done within 24 hours. 20 of them were done greater than 24 hours due to delayed presentation or due to polytrauma and being needed to wait to go to the OR. So basically, lots of kind of variability there, which means we kind of get inklings from this study, but we don't really have enough power to really push one way or the other, but we'll, we'll talk about all this. And so taking a look, 53 of the 73 healed after one operation and had no osteonecrosis. So like 53 out of 73, which turns out to be 73%, healed after one operation with no osteonecrosis, which is pretty good. 14 more healed, but had some osteonecrosis. osteonecrosis. Three had non-union, and then another three had both non-union and osteonecrosis. And so overall, pretty good healing rate overall, but there still were folks that did have osteonecrosis. Ultimately, 13 of them, 18%, required a THA with a mean time to that total hip seven years after the fixation. There was an 88% survival at five years and an 85% survival at 10 years. And so it looks like maybe those that are going to get a total hip, it, they ended up crumbling and needing that within the first five years or so. But if you have made it out of that time frame, maybe you're doing pretty good. So taking a look at the results uh, and trying to evaluate them, just thinking about it, does, does displacement matter? Overall, they had non-union in six out of 73, which is 8%. And, and four of those actually healed after a reoperation. So even with non-union, you can possibly get some reunion re, uh, after a second surgery. 17 had osteonecrosis. If we look at the, of the displaced fractures, which is 51, five out of those 51 had non-union, which actually accounted for five of the six non-unions. 14 of the 51 had osteonecrosis, which is 14 of the 17 total fractures with osteoporosis. So there was no significant difference just kind of from the numbers of the study, but this is definitely a trend. And I think it, it does make sense that if you're having greater displacement, you're increasing your risk for non-union or osteonecrosis. And while this doesn't have a significant difference, it, it kind of makes sense in, in your head and and it is a trend in that direction. So does, does reduction matter? So they're taking a look at their image. They saw that they had an excellent or a good reduction in, in 46 and 11 of those or 24% developed non-union osteonecrosis or both. There were five that had fair or poor reduction and four out of five or 80% developed non-union osteonecrosis or both. And so once again, don't have really enough numbers to, to power this. So there's no significant difference in these numbers, but it certainly seems like there's a trend that good, excellent or good reduction can help be protective of non-union osteonecrosis, fair or poor reduction can possibly increase your risk. So it's important to talk about, even if we do it an excellent job, there is a risk, but it looks like it probably makes it a little bit less, probably, maybe. So take a look at function. So 
60 or 59 patients of 60 fractures did not get a THA. 58 of them, 58 of the 60 fractures caused mild or no pain at all, which is 97%. So of the people who do not need to get a THA or people that healed did pretty well. Two of them caused moderate pain, which was associated with activity limitations and, or a, a regular use of NSAIDs. And overall, seven patients used a cane and one used a walker, but the patient also had a history of TBI and hemiparesis. And so tough to put that all at the, the, the feet of the fracture. What are the limitations from this? So basically, it's difficult to generalize these just because of, there was a lot of heterogeneity. There's some, a lot of surgeon rationale and surgeon decision-making for, for the allocated versus the performed procedure. The sample sizes for each of the kind of sub-analyses is, is a little bit small. And uh, taking a look at the timing of intervention, we didn't see a difference in that. But once again, the numbers are a little bit lower. There's also a lot of heterogeneity and mechanism of injury could be a, a motor vehicle accident. It could be an insufficiency fracture or a fall. And they also looked at capsulotomy. If, does the capsulotomy help reduce risks? It, once again, numbers, it was didn't see a difference. Didn't have a lot of numbers to really point one or the other. And also the difference between the fixation device and approach. So overall, the conclusions to summarize all that, I just talked a lot and probably a little bit fast, but they can heal and they do well. Whenever I'm talking with a, a patient, I'm always saying, you know, I want to make sure that we talk about there is a risk of osteonecrosis, 23% of patients based on this. So like, you know, quarter of patients can have osteonecrosis, but this may or may not lead to an early total hip. We can say at 10 years after this fracture, 18% of patients have undergone a total hip. And we know that five of 17 with osteonecrosis did not get a total hip. And so people with osteonecrosis do get total hips, but people with osteonecrosis also don't get total hips. And then we can kind of use some of that data of at five years, it looks like if you make it at five years, you, you might be doing pretty good. We know that conclusions, we can say that displacement seems like it matters, reduction seems like it matters. And overall, we know that we have, why do we think that this matters and young patients, why they can heal this and old patient, older patients can't or elders can't. You have a better healing in young bud, young folks with a good bone quality and robust blood supply. And we do have higher rates of non-union in the elderly, which is greater than 30%, which is in a different paper. But that's the reason why we're not talking about this for older patients. And we talked about it in our first our first paper today. So hopefully that was uh, clear as mud or at least cleared up some things, a good conversation talking about all this stuff. And I uh, hope you guys learned something can take some stuff to board, ask some good questions and take a look at some good things. Uh, looking at the lateral uh, on our non-displaced fractures, making sure non-displaced, taking a look at the, the picture of the patient and being able to determine hemi versus not hemi. And if you're throwing in a hemi, make sure you're thinking about cement and young people go ahead and fix it, but make sure you talk about risk of uh, total hip in the future or osteonecrosis that we're going to continue following them for. Thanks guys. We hope that you all enjoyed that episode. They really broke down femoral neck fractures, talked about all the high yield stuff and went over the articles. They did it so smoothly. It was great. We hope that you all enjoyed it. We hope that you always subscribe. We hope that you just tell one person about the podcast and we will see you all next time. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all of the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from local physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.